I was chatting to an indigenous bloke the other day and I grabbed a sample of the things he was saying and I carbon dated them. And from that carbon dating, uh, I, um, I was able to detect that 2,300 years ago, indigenous people uh, worked out that the earth was a globe. Uh, the way they did that, they saw the, um, there was a uh, canoe uh, with an outrigger uh, heading off to Hamilton Island, you know, from Queensland. Uh, and they called it Hamilton Island back then. Um, and uh, as, it, as, it, as it went towards the horizon, they could see that it, the, the boat was sinking into the water. And from that, they worked out that the earth was curved. You know, because that makes sense, you know. And um, so first they could see just a, um, half the boat, you know, as it sailed away. And then they could just see the people in the boat. And then finally they could only just see their heads. And then the people disappeared. And then later the boat came back and they could see their heads again as if they were rising out of the water. And, uh, the, um, and then they could see the top of the boat and then... As the boat got closer back to the mainland, they could see the whole boat again. And, um, and this was about 2,300 years ago. And one of the blokes on the mainland said, you guys disappeared and you came back again um, as you went to Hamilton Island. And one of the blokes on the boat says, I've actually, uh, I actually noticed something like that myself. I saw, you know, I saw the mainland disappearing under the water. Anyway, they got together and uh, had a chat about that and said, do you know what? I think the earth is curved. So if the earth is curved, um, if, you, if, you, if you just um, extrapolate that, um, then it must be kind of like a, a basketball. You know, they used the word basketball back then. Um, and, uh, and, and they were even able to make a calculation as to, you know, based on the curvature that they could work out, you know, just from that, from that distance between the mainland and Hamilton Island, and they figured out the size of the Earth. Now that probably didn't happen, you might argue. But then, 2,300 years ago, I think something like that did happen, in Greece at least, and we know about it because it was written down. One way or another, the Greeks worked out that um, the earth was a basketball. Um, or some Greeks did anyway, and some Indians did too. And, you know, this, uh, this, this, it's recorded uh, that that happened. Uh, now, it, the, the um, indigenous peoples 2,300 years ago, indigenous Australians, could well have come up with that as well. You can't say that they didn't. I can't say that they did. But they could have. Uh, you know, and people who um, do have an oral history and, you know, civilizations, you know, and... Um, uh, cultures rise and fall and have their golden ages and 
you know, and then their golden ages go away, and then the new golden ages come, and all that sort of thing, and, you know, um, 65,000 years, for example, is a long time, and a lot can happen in 65,000 years, you know, great ideas can be had and then lost easily, uh, this episode of this podcast will gently explore some of that on with the show. This is the next episode of a string of episodes about Indigenous Australia. And if you've been listening to my podcast so far, number one, my uh, sympathies, but number two, you'll know uh, that I am doing these podcasts in a style that is deliberately trying to be different from uh, most podcasts and public discourse relating to Indigenous Australia. Yeah, it's almost like I'm trying to be different, you know, um, and and it, it's almost like I'm I'm saying I'm aware of my self construct, my social construction as a Westerner trying to talk about Indigenous Australia. So I'm going to get all Zen and detached, and you know I'm going to do something different, um, and I am not going to declare that I have any uh, sympathies for Indigenous people, nor am I going to declare that I have any sympathies for Western civilization. You know, I'm going to be the opposite of all that, you know. Um, And I'm going to be, you know, so classless and detached and zen. But then I find myself probably outwitting myself, you know. Uh, and, um, yeah, I think I'm being detached, you know, from my social construction, but my childish attempts to be detached arise from my social construction anyway, which all, you know, ends up something like a circular reference that does my head in, and, um, it it reminds me, and I've actually been listening to podcasts on, 20th century philosophy, you know, and in uh, the early 20th century, you know, there were philosophers that came up with ideas that everything we're thinking arises from our social construction, you know, and then they did their own heads in too, because the, you know, the philosopher community then um, suddenly realised that the fact that they even came up with that observation, um, was, uh, you know, an idea that was formed within that social construction. This goes down a rabbit hole. Uh, and, it, uh, you know, I lose track of what it's all about at that point. So don't overthink it, you know, um, you know because at that point I get lost. And uh, I don't even know what's going on. 
So I'm making it up as I go along instead. Now, if you've been listening to my podcasting, do you know they call that post-structuralism, apparently? Post-modernism? Yeah. Where, you know, the modernists, apparently, and the structuralists, all you know, had this brainwave that, uh, in which they said, Aha! We have risen above, you know, um, our our social construction and recognised that we are socially constructed. And then someone else came along and said, ah, yes, but that act of rising above is part of your social construction. And they went, oh, no, damn, still trapped. It's like the mafia keeps dragging you back in. And then my bet is that there were post-postmodernists who outwitted those guys. And then post-post-postmodernists who outwitted those guys. And... Then we get to a situation such as my 12-year-old daughter described uh, in um, some sort of childish wisdom that kind of outdoes the greatest philosophers, probably not, but you know what I mean. And um, she said that. She said even if humans came up with her idea, they'd just keep changing it anyway. She said something like that. Sometimes I quote what she was saying and I'm not quite getting to the bottom of what she's saying because my mind is not fancy free like hers. She's better at that because she's still 12 and we adults are a little bit locked up in our thinking, maybe. Anyway, um, all of that is just to say that even I don't know what my approach is here, but, you know, I'm glad that I just know that. You know that only because within your social construction... Ah, damn. (laughs) See how ridiculous philosophy is? It eats itself. Philosophy really is ridiculous. All right, so let's just get on with the show instead. And, uh, And you'll probably remember how I'm going about this show all of a sudden. Um, For reasons that are virtuous and ridiculous at the same time and uh, which are noble and corrupt at the same time, I've grabbed someone else's podcast on Indigenous Australia and his name is Chris and he's a fellow Melbourneite. And I'm, um, you know, I'm using my iPad and my phone and I'm playing his podcast into my iPad as a contribution to my podcast, this is all completely corrupt and against the rules, the unwritten rules of podcasting and decency. But I don't follow those rules and I don't know where they're written down and I have no moral compass, uh, so I'm doing it anyway. And, uh, And so what I do is play snippets of his podcast Um, because he's researched his very heavily and I haven't researched mine at all. So I play bits of his podcast and I stop it when something he says triggers an idea for me in my podcast. And, you know, he makes a comment and I said, aha, I can use that. And then I use that as a springboard for my podcast. Absolute cheating. Um, And I find it corrupt and reprehensible. And I'm going to do it again. Here comes the little uh, bit of music.
that I put at the end of these. Three, two, one. Well, a mere 230 years ago, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things, there was an island just like this. A really big island. 7.7 million square kilometres of island. That's comparable to the size of the contiguous United States of America, or the entirety of Europe. Today, we're going to dig into the history of the Aboriginal people of this island, Australia, and the pre-colonial years. Now, remember that this covers an estimated 65,000 years of time, but please note that the stories about Aboriginal culture before the mid-1700s, which is what we're discussing, it was an oral history, which means it was passed down verbally. It was through song, through story, through from generation to generation, and coupled with the dark realities of colonisation and its near annihilation of these people altogether. This means that stitching the episode together was not easy. We're used to oral histories in Western culture too. Homer, for example. All right, let's keep listening to him. It was not easy. There's a lot of theories out there. There's a lot of noise out there. I've been trying to cut through the weeds and find the best information I can for months. And I can say this honestly, we may never know the full truth, the full scope of the broadness of the culture of the people who inhabited this great island. I'll go one step further than that and say we'll definitely never know. Uh, I mentioned in a previous episode I took my children on a field trip to the Bora Rings in Sunbury, you know, the initiation grounds of the indigenous peoples up there. And, yeah, and Catherine and her children came with us too. And, uh, I, you know, because I was there, I decided to Google something about it, and there were some indigenous uh, people who were saying what they thought the history of those Bora rings were, but then someone who was an auntie, um, if you know anything about indigenous culture, which I know very little about, uh, auntie and uncle have, you know, they have a certain... Uh, a different meaning of those words than we have. You know, um, different cultures adopt different words and change the meanings. You know, um, you can do that. You know, people do that all the time. Uh, they, they, they. I'm an auntie, and, um, but it's not an auntie like the way we say auntie. Uh, even though auntie is our word, so to speak. You know, they can change it. Um, anyway, she said, or was it was it an uncle? I can't remember, but. Some, some indigenous person said, look, all in all, we have no idea. Um, a lot of this, a lot of our own memory of our own culture has been erased. You know, we've forgotten ourselves because of colonialism mainly, you know. And, you know, this is true the world over. Um, there, um, more has been forgotten about cultures than has been remembered. And um, a lot is forgotten even without the intervention of conquerors coming into a culture. You know, uh, um, cultures are very good at forgetting their own, at not, uh, forgetting 98% of their own culture in history. They only remember a tiny bit, and a lot of that is tweaked as well. Um, so we had this big, you know, like the French and the English, for example. <coughs> excuse me, uh, went um, to Egypt 
and to India. Uh, yeah, the English went to India and to these places, and they did a lot of scientific work, archaeology and all the rest of it. And as much as they did bad things in those lands, as cultures the world over have done bad things in other lands throughout history, uh, as much as the English and the French and so on did bad things in other lands, um, in, in respect of many things, they brought back culture for those lands. So a lot of the cultural practices of a lot of cultures around the world now uh, are cultural practices that they themselves had forgotten and which the English brought back, you know, and by archaeology, for example. And one of them might be, you know, uh, the um, hieroglyphics in Egypt. But for the Europeans, um, now, was it the French and the English both had a hand in the Rosetta Stone? But, but for the English and the French, let's say, if I've got those, if I've got the facts right on those, um, yeah, Napoleon, did he, did they come back in one of Napoleon's expeditions to Egypt, the Rosetta Stone, and did, was it translated by an English person? Uh, the Rosetta Stone essentially was a translation tablet that was discovered in Egypt, and I think it was by the French, and I think it was translated by the English, but it really doesn't matter. I'm not into the detail of the facts. I'm into the ideas in broad, you know, I'm, I'm into, hi kids, I'm into getting you excited, and you go and find out the details. It's not my job to teach you. You have to teach yourself. You know, you'll learn better if you teach yourself. Right, anyway, point is, um, the Egyptians themselves didn't know how to read their own hieroglyphics. Uh, on all the pyramids and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, and now, what a dangerous word. Thanks to the Europeans, now they can. And that forms a very big part of their cultural experience and their, co and their um, tourism industry too. All right, now that's how we know the names of, you know, that's how we know so much about Egypt now. All right. So that's the way it goes, you know. And, um, well, you know, the British have discovered many things about indigenous culture that the indigenous people themselves didn't know, uh, I would think. You know, I won't get into it, but, you know, uh, fossilised records, megafauna and all those sorts of things, you know. There were myths and all that sort of thing, but um, uh, that the uh, indigenous peoples had. But, you know, look, everyone's working together to kill each other, to destroy each other, and to discover things about each other. You know, we're humans, and we do very bad things to each other, but um, we've got a few little birthday presents for each other at the same time. You know, we'll stab you with one hand, and we'll give you a real gift with the other. We're a funny lot. A funny lot. All right, so that's people. Um, what was um, Chris my colleague saying then that prompted all this, I forget. Uh, let's just listen to a little bit more of what he's got to say. But here is my best goddamn shot. My best Welcome goddamn shot. to the history of Australia. My best goddamn shot. I don't give my best goddamn shot. I just, I just chat. 
Okay, so from here, I'm going to stop myself for a second and add in some context. It has occurred to me, and I've received a couple of emails, that there are some people listening who know very, very little about Australia. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take a few minutes here to get you caught up on some of the basics of the country so that you get a grounding to work off as I refer to places or time periods uh, in the coming episodes. So, as we discussed last episode, current estimates put human beings inhabiting this landmass later known as Australia, or back then Sahul, about 65,000 years ago. Between 60,000 BCE and 1606, Europeans did not know this place existed. Alright. Now, um, Europeans did not know this place existed. That is true. Uh, but as far back as the ancient Greeks, um... Uh, hypothesized that there was a great southern land um, and um, and for example Cicero in Rome um, referred to that great southern land as Australis you know Australia uh, and Cicero was you know just before the time of Jesus so uh, yes Europeans did not know that this land existed but they did hypothesized the existence of a great southern land you know, in that pers Greek pursuit of balance and they, they thought there must be uh, something down south to balance off all this stuff at the north and the Greeks had you know, a pretty good idea that the earth was a globe you know, the Indians way back then too you know, it, um, and you know, it was, uh, you know much more recently we were we dropped back into the idea of a flat earth um, uh, this is Europeans I, I dare say most other cultures just didn't even think along these lines at all you know they just oh, indigenous people just thought this was the land you know and talk of whether the well, there was even a planet you know it was ridiculous you know uh, um, I don't know what the you know the uh, the indigenous people. I don't know what their um, uh, their take on the stars and the planets in the sky were. I'm sure they were just as they were just as sophisticated as um, European takes on the stars uh, before um, Copernicus and Galileo and all that. You know, well, the Europeans added a layer then when they realised that they were stars and planets and things like that, you know, um, independent of, you know, of the, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, the planets do look very different in the sky compared to um, stars, for example. They don't twinkle. Uh, you can tell what a planet is. And uh, we were stargazing the other day, my friend Jeff and I, looking up in the sky and he was pointing out there's Jupiter yeah at that moment in time it was just above the moon and there's Saturn he said that was just below the moon and to the right uh, is that reversed up in the northern hemisphere uh, let me think. yes it has to be um, yeah Jupiter would be lower would it all right um, and uh, Jupiter you know that was the main god in ancient Rome he was the main god. He was the Zeus. Jupiter. Yeah, um, Alright. Uh, now, alright, let's get back to Chris. Um, 
Mitchell. I'll just, re- I'll just rewind what he said in that last few seconds. Tool about Australia. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take a few minutes here to get you caught up on some of the basics of the country so that you get a grounding to work off as I refer to places or time periods uh, in the coming episodes. So, as we discussed last episode, current estimates put human beings inhabiting this landmass later known as Australia, or back then Sahul, about 65,000 years ago. Between 60,000 BCE and 1606, Europeans did not know this place existed. Ah, yes, he mentioned BCE. I say BC, yeah. Um, it's not for any Christian reason, uh, but I figure we're using a Roman calendar. And so I say BC, just as a way to acknowledge the Romans, you know, we're, we're using their calendar. Um, so I like to refer to the time periods the way they refer to the time periods, you know, just as a sign of respect, you know, like um, an acknowledgement, a copyright almost, you know. Um, I don't like changing it to BCE and CE. I'd rather say BC and AD. And this coming from someone who doesn't necessarily believe a single Jesus existed, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I just as, I'm just as likely to believe that uh, Jesus was the sort of uh, sort of revolutionary preacher that got around Judea at the time that Jesus is reported to have got around. And uh, that... Um, the words that are attributed to Jesus were the sorts of words that those evangelists or, uh, you know, religious, Jewish religious reformers were likely to say. Um, but quite apart from Jesus altogether, I like BC and I like AD just as a tip of the hat to Rome. Yeah, if, if we were using an, what, an Islamic calendar, I would suggest that we use whatever they say, you know. What do they say? Have they got it before Muhammad and after Muhammad? If they say before Muhammad, I would say we should say before Muhammad if we're going to use their calendar as a a show of respect, you know. That's all. Okay, let's go back to Chris. Existed. Aboriginal Australians lived and evolved here untouched in that time. Then, in 1606, a Dutch... Aboriginal... Australians had evolved untouched in all that time from 65,000 years ago to recently, you know, when the Dutch came to Western Australia. I'm a bit nervous about the word evolved. Um, I feel that it's have we, did we, well, did we keep evolving after 65,000 years ago? That would make us a different species, you know, quite apart from the fact that we've got slight genetic differences, you know. Europeans are, um, are a little bit Neanderthal, 3% maybe, and uh, indigenous peoples are maybe 3% Denisovian or Denisovan, I can't remember which one it is. And... The word evolved is, a, you know, I don't, not, not for any um, moral reason or humanitarian reason, but you'd have to be very careful about that word and what you mean by it. Uh, you know, arguably the first indigenous people that landed on 
this continent, Australia, um, may not be less evolved than the ones who were here more recently. And it would throw up, even if I was a uh, one of those people who sings the modern type of pop song that, you know, we are, we are, we are all the same. Um, even if I was one of those people, people? Um, people, um, I would be a little bit nervous, just on a logical level, about the idea of how much evolution you can do in 65,000 years, which isn't much. But then, you know, on another level, I sort of think, well, the Greeks evolved us when they came up with their philosophers in a certain way of thinking. Um, you know, what makes us human? And we say, well, what makes us human is we're a rational animal. I hear that sometimes. Now, there's different types of rational. But, uh, you know, the Greeks came up with a whole new world of rationalism. And I'm not actually being pro my own ancestors then. At that time, my ancestors were tribal primitives. You know, uh, arguably... Uh, compared to the Greeks, you know. So I'm arguing against myself there. But I'd just be careful of the word evolution. Um, and I'm being a little bit pedantic there. But it is important because it can be used for evil and it can be used for good. I don't care whether it's used for evil or used for good. If you're an evil person and you vote for John Howard, <laughs> then uh, you've got my full support. If you love Tony Abbott, if you've got an I love Tony Abbott t-shirt, I'm all for you. But, you know, if you've got that other t-shirt that was going around about Tony Abbott, I'm fine with you too. I, I like a chat with whoever. Each to their own, as long as it's not hurting anybody. I don't know if it's hurting anybody. All right. Um, let's get back to it again. Uh, no, we won't. I've just landed at my coffee shop. So let's have my little bit of theme music instead. Hold tight, here it comes, and... Coffee in hand. Uh, as I said in a previous episode, the structure of these episodes of late, in which I sort of bounce off someone else's podcast is problematic it's uh, not my style uh, but I'm doing it anyway I'm plowing on because I started it so I'll finish it but it does come across as me putting someone else's podcast on just to pull it apart uh, but then again you know if I did that about my own podcasts I'd be doing it the same way I'd be playing one of my own episodes and pulling it apart you know because it's well, what else can I do? Sorry, I dropped my keys there. Um, you know, I, look, it's not a good thing, and it's not a bad thing. You know, it's just one podcast offers. You know, you know, we 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 do that. You know, Socrates did that, didn't he? If someone said something, he challenged them. Not necessarily a bad thing. All right, now, um, yeah, just as um, I was talking about evolution, then the idea of evolution. Uh, made me think of my brother. Uh, my brother has got a... He, no one looks more Aussie than my brother. Oh, my goodness, everyone says. What do you mean by Aussie? You know, Indigenous? No. You know. Um, words, remember, I said this earlier, can take on different meanings in different contexts. 
what we tend to mean by Aussie. And it really doesn't matter whether you agree with this or not. I'm just saying the way it is. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. I'm just saying the way it is. What we tend to mean by Aussies in Australia is kind of Anglo-Celtic Yobbo type, basically, you know, g'day. That sort of thing. Uh, and you might say, you can't say that. Well, I just did, you know. Well, you're a redneck then. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you how it is. I'm reporting. I'm reporting. So, for example, I'm married to into a Greek family, you know, half Greek and half English. Okay, Greeks. And my mother-in-law is Greek. She's a Spartan. And, you know, often she says, you Aussies. You know? But she's been an Aussie longer than I've been an Aussie. She says, you Aussies, you know, you can't cook. She's right. You Aussies can't cook. Now, have a think about that. What is she saying there? You Aussies. She's calling me an Aussie, more Aussie than her, when she's been an Australian longer than I have. You know, because I was born after she came to Australia. She was part of that um, Greek and Italian wave in the 50s. All right, she came in, she was in Australia, what, 10 years before I was. So does that make sense? It doesn't matter if it makes sense. Was she talking about indigenous people when she said Aussies? No, she wasn't. You know? And you can then say, um, she shouldn't be calling you an Aussie. She should only be calling indigenous people an Aussie because um, we've only been here for 250 years and they've been here for 65,000 years. So 250 divided by 65,000 is you know, a very small number. And you're only very tiny bit Aussie, you know, very, 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 very tiny. You're point zero 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 one percent Aussie, you know. It doesn't work like that, you know. Words, words are whatever you want them to be, okay. Words can hurt, you know, <laughs> sticks and stones. No, um, so that's what I'm getting at. Now, my brother, uh, he's an Aussie um, and he's got a... He's got a four-wheel drive, and he goes um, to uh, on four-wheel drive runs up the country, and he's got a big sign at the top of his uh, front window. You know those stick-on signs that says Ballarat Rednecks. You know, um, but when it comes to his attitude towards Indigenous people, uh, I would take I. I would have him um, as um, someone I would prefer above many an anti-racist. Now, I won't really, I probably will explain that, but what I'm getting at, he is a very egalitarian. He takes each person as they come. Uh, he, um, you know, if you're a good bloke, um, he's on your team. And if you do the righty, he's with you. And if you do the wrongy, he doesn't like you, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely regardless of race, culture, creed, all that sort of thing, you know. Takes each person as he comes and he's had many, well, look, he lived in Northern Territory for a long time and he's been with Indigenous people a lot, you know. Um, uh, he's had many mates, you know. And a lot of these anti-racist, compassionates, you know, really haven't even met an indigenous person, don't know what they're talking about, you know. Um, and they're living in this sort of philosophical, detached state of moralising in the same way that I live in a philosophical, 
amoral state, detached state of chatting, you know? That's what most of us do. I don't know any indigenous people, but my brother does, or has in the past at least. He's moved back here to Victoria um, since then, so he's no doubt fallen out of contact with people he used to know. Um, but uh, I mention him because um, someone mentioned to him, you know, that um, once challenged the idea, you know, indigenous people aren't as evolved as um, Westerners. And uh, my brother's got that Spartan way. Do you want me to go back? Hang on. Yeah, I'm coming out. Sorry, there's a truck wanting to get in my spot. I'll get out of the way as an act of niceness. Give me five seconds. He looked like a redneck, that guy in that truck. Right, now, um, so I'm just in a car park, so I'm not driving while I'm using phones. Now, uh, yeah, and um, my brother has that Spartan way about him, where, you know, if, uh, with me, if 10 words suffice, I'll use a million, as you know. So if I could express something in two minutes perfectly well, I'll, I'll express it as a two-hour podcast. And that's me. Um, should I, you know, you can ask me to change my ways, but I won't, because that's me. But my brother is the opposite. Um, if he listened to one of my two-hour podcasts, you know, which I very much doubt he ever would, um, he would get to the end of it and said, oh, what you really mean was boom. You know, and he'd say it in five words. And I'd say, yeah, that's right, actually. And he said, well, why didn't you just make it a 10-second podcast? And I said, because I'm me and you're you. Anyway, someone said to him um, that, you know, they said something racist to him along the lines of evolution and all that sort of stuff. And um, he just said, there's not enough. There hasn't been enough time. He's... um, and now, what did he mean by that? Well, he was saying 65,000 years is nothing, you know, in, term, in evolutionary terms. And he says it hasn't been enough time. Um, he said, we're all, you know, we're cousins, indigenous people and Europeans, you know. We, we split up for a bit and then uh, got back together again soon after in evolutionary terms. That's what he was saying. And I think there's some validity to that. Uh, now, rock art, for example, um, humans seem to switch on um, to things at certain periods of time all over the world, all at the same time, even when they're not in contact with each other. I love that. I think that's fantastic. All right. So rock art, for example. And this, this, um, this uh, hints that my brother might be right, you know. Um, and he said... Um, uh, yeah, so rock art. So rock art, whether it was in France or, you know, Australia or anywhere else. Now, I don't know when that, you know, there was a specific specific type of rock art that sprang up. Um, and it sprang up all over the world at the same time. Okay? Now, and, and this amazes me. And um, 2,300 years ago, on all the different continents, it appears that... A little philosophical light bulb switched on in the heads of 
humans all over the world all at the same time you know you had the Greek philosophers over there and then you had Buddha and all that sort of stuff over in um, India and then you had Confucius up in China now I've got no proof um, but I dare say and I bet no I, I'm just going to bet um, that a little light bulb was going off in the collective human evolved imagination at the same time you know rock art all happened at the same time wherever you you know and they're finding rock art and it's all dated back to the same time and these are between cultures who didn't even know each other all right and then um there was a little philosophical awakening um 2300 years ago you know which i i personally see as you know humans all jumping leaping at the same time and my bet is that that was replicated on other continents as well, not just in China and India, you know, subcontinent, um, not just in China and India and in Greece, you know, and, you know, in other places too. Um, but also, I bet it was, you know, in the Americas and I bet it is... It was in Australia, and you had philosophers there, but it was all oral history there, you know. They said they weren't writing, uh, they weren't writing it down per se and recording it for posterity, but um, just for fun, with no evidence. See, and scientists would hate me for that. Remember the previous episodes? I said science isn't everything. You're allowed to hypothesise. Well, even within science, you're allowed to hypothesise, and even if you know that you'll never get proof, you're allowed to hang on to that hypothesis just for fun. Um, and throw it up there in the air. And this is where a lot of people who are absolute sticklers for, if there's no evidence, I don't want to hear about it, I, I think they're missing some colour, you know, in their, in, in the, um, in their own imaginations. Um, and I like to believe this to be true, in the same way that uh, my daughter in a previous episode said that even though Indigenous people know all about scientists and Big Bang and all that sort of stuff, they like to hold on to their culture because it gives them something that science can't give, right? So that's a, a, an extra level of truth, but a different type of truth, not a scientific truth, not a data-based truth. When I say database, I don't mean database like access, you know, SQL or whatever. Um, I mean a data-based truth. It is a truth um, that lives in our imaginations, you know, and our imaginations are most surely part of the universe, just like um, space and time, you know. Um, our imaginations are natural, and if we imagine something, that's real, because it's a real thought in the real universe. So it's real, you know, you can't discount it. All right, you can, of course you can discount it. You know? um, I'm not telling you what you can and can't do. I'm only saying what I do and what I don't do. All right. So all of that evolution, you know, I had a little chat about evolution then, didn't I? Um, and I've got lots of other things I could say about evolution, but I won't. All right. Let's um, let's have another uh, little, you know, my little drum beats or whatever I do at these, the end of these little segments. Um, prayer, sing, stop. Curiously enough, mentioning that what I think might have been might have been uh, a light bulb going off in the collective human imagination in uh, terms of philosophy 2,300 years ago. 
a lot of people think uh, people like Jesus, you know, that, that um, everything, you know, before him was nothing and after him was everything, you know. But I put him a few hundred years after the light bulb went off, riding on the, the coattails of all of that. That's where I put him. Uh, but that's just me, you know. So, um, uh, you know, uh, look, my personal thing is I'd have before Socrates and after Socrates. You know, I like Socrates. Um, you know, um, there were things about Socrates I liked better than Jesus. Um, uh, you know, he had a certain humility that Jesus didn't have. Uh, Socrates, uh, you know, uh, Jesus was uh, the sort of person who would say, I am right about everything. And Socrates was a sort of person, a completely different, a different type of humility than Jesus was talking about. Socrates would say, I am not right about it. I'm wrong about everything. I doubt everything I say, you know. So please, doubt everything I say, but doubt everything you say too. Well, Jesus is the opposite, you know, and he says, um, I have a message for you and I am right, you know, which is a sort of anti-humility on one level. Uh, but I put Jesus as, you know, riding on the coattails, you know, he was part of the Roman Empire, so he was very clued into classical thinking, and as was Paul, who came after him, Paul, I think he was a native Greek speaker, you know, and he, he um, very steeped in the Greek classics, I'm sure, because he had a Roman education, um, and, uh, you know, the people who started Christianity, uh, I don't see them as a light bulb moment per se I think they were living in the shadows of a, a terrible civil war you know, kicked off by um, the crisis in the previous century you know all the dictators Sulla and Marius and you know and then um, you know, uh, Julius Caesar you know with Crassus and what's his name um, Pompey um, and there's a Pompey in America at the moment, by the way, who's Trump's right-hand man. You know, if Trump is Caesar, then there's a we've got another Pompey. All right. Now, um, so um, I see Jesus as um, the idea, you know, like um, if, if, you know, to find an analogy today, um, both major parties had led, left, had, let Rome down, you know. Um, people like Paul, or Jesus, if you like, were looking around them and they say, the Ro Rome has tried one way and it's tried the other and it's all failed and look what's happened to you with all this philosophy and all this sort of stuff. And it's all let you down. Um, and we've had terrible wars and look at you. You, you know, you've just been through the hardest and most horrible existence recently. You know, everyone you know practically has been killed um, and um, it all seemed so good, didn't it? You know, when Socrates and all those people and Plato and Aristotle were coming up with philosophies, didn't it all seem good? Um, but look where it's led us, you know, and it's terrible. So I propose a new way, you know. So they were reformers, you know. And I've always thought, you know, this is, a, I don't make anything up. I squawk like a parrot, imitating what other people say, you know, because that's me. Uh, but. You know, it was it was kind of a Jewish, um, uh, a Jewish sort of uh, person with a classical overlay. You know, and I often feel that Paul, is, you know, and I think this is all post 
post the light bulb going off 2,300 years ago. Jesus was only 2,000 years ago, and he wasn't the defining moment, I think, per se. He ended up a defining moment of sorts, um, you know, in retrospect. But in his time, he was just a, you know, a, a reformer, you know, and... Um, and a parrot squawking in a way, echoing uh, both Jewish tradition and classical thinking. You know, a lot of what Jesus says in his teachings are not revelation. You know, they're echoing thoughts, enlightened thoughts that had been growing in Greece and Rome for a long time and elsewhere too, Persia and all that sort of stuff, you know. So he was uh, re, re you know, rebadging all of that, and you know his followers um, who were starry-eyed um, treated it as revelation from God, you know. But really, he was grabbing Jewish traditions and overlaying classical ideas because he happened to be born into a, um, a classical environment. He was born in the Roman Empire, so the Roman. And Greek thinking were all around Jesus and Paul or whoever wrote the idea wrote down the idea of Christianity and the gospel writers whoever they were you know well after Matthew Mark Luke and John died whoever the people who called themselves Matthew Mark Luke and John were um, then you know and wrote wrote those books down Matthew Mark Luke and John uh, they were living in a classical world much like I'm living in Australia now so um, they didn't you know, you can say that their their ideas were arising from complete introspection, straight out of their heads, um, such they had no social construction. They weren't deriving their ideas from Roman Greece, but I say they were. You know, and I say Christianity is a bit of a blend of uh, Judeo. You know, and people say Judeo-Christian. You know, I say Judeo-classical. I find Christianity to be judeo-classical in nature a judeo-classical idea you know and i find islam to be something like a um what would you call it a judeo um a judeo-arab um ideology you know or, or religion you know so take your pick you know i'm not saying which one's better i'm just saying that's the way i see it you know christianity is judeo-classical in my book and you know paul yeah, but the Judeo-classical kind of reflects Paul the man, doesn't it? Because he was half Jewish and half classical. He was half Jewish and half Roman. He was Paul and Saul. Uh, and I almost, yeah, sometimes I think he's a narcissist, not the Greek kind of narcissist who just fell in love with himself um, and, um, and didn't care what anyone else thought, you know, of him. Um, I feel Paul was very much connected to the people of the world. Narcissus, the original Narcissus in Greek mythology um, was completely detached from the world and didn't even care if anyone was looking at it. Even the, the, whoever that girl was that fell in love with him uh, didn't care about her, didn't, um, didn't even know she existed because he was too busy staring at his own reflection. That's one kind of Narcissism. I think that's the original Narcissism. But Narcissism has, the word has been changed. I say that often in these podcasts words change their meanings you know people say what does narciss what's a narcissist 
And you can't answer questions like that. You have to be like a politician. You say, well, back in ancient Greece, a narcissist was this, you know, someone who just sort of looks in, you know, sits by a river and looks at his own reflection and forgets to eat. He loves his own reflection so much and he doesn't realise it's a reflection because he's an idiot, like a dog who reaches for the bone and drops the bone into the water, um, trying to get two bones. Narcissus was looking at his own reflection and saw something beautiful there and just stared at it and loved it so much and couldn't stop looking at it that, you know, he got hungry and uh, faded away and died. You know, that's the, the original narcissist. So when people say, you know, such and such is a narcissist, you have to be almost like a politician and say, what do you mean by narcissist? And you already know what they mean. They mean more a modern idea of a narcissist. And Paul, I see as something of a narcissist in the modern sense, um, you know, before he had his revelation on the road to Damascus, he was a narcissist in a Roman sense, you know, and persecuted Christians, apparently. Um, and I'm not sure persecution of Christians was a huge thing there. And at that point in time in history, um, Christians were fairly irrelevant at that time, I think. I think Nero had a crack at them, but, you know, well, we'll see a little bit later. Um, uh, the real persecution of Christians came sort of later when they more came to Rome's attention, I think. But anyway, Paul, um, uh, yeah, and I, I think um, Nero was the beast. Nero 666, the beast, you know. He was about to usher in the end of the the world. He was, you know, as as laid down in Revelations. You know, maybe Nero was the beast and the end of the world was nigh. And, uh, you know, way back then, <laughs> just after Jesus died, and um, the end has been nigh ever since. Every generation there's been people saying, with the next Pope, the world will end, you know, because it's all about the Pope, you know. And then, ah, Popes come and go, and another Pope comes up, and those people don't say anything, you know. Someone else comes up and says, the next Pope, the world will end, because it's all about Christianity, it's all about Catholicism, you know. The whole world spins on Catholicism, and um, and it's all about the Pope, you know. It doesn't spin on Donald Trump, it spins on the Pope. Um, God, it's all centred there. All right. Anyway, so, um, completely forgotten what I was talking about. I don't mind wandering like that, you know, I just, I was just rambling then. Uh, do you know what? I can ramble like that and I'm sure there's some little nuggets in there that make you smile. Um, kids, if you're listening. Um, alright, so, that's the way I see Jesus, um, that, um, you know, he, he was ushering, or maybe it was Paul and the Gospel writers, the early Christians, they were ushering in a Judeo-classical reform of the previously purely Judeo-Israelite um, uh, ideology of their culture, you know. So they were reformers, but I don't see it as a light bulb going off. I just see it as a reaction to the Civil War in, um, you know, in, um, in Rome, you know, the Civil Wars, you know, with Augustus versus Mark Antony and all that sort of stuff, and Cleopatra getting, you know, all that sort of stuff and getting the chop and all that sort of thing. Um, okay, um, so, yeah, look, why did I say all that? Because I just felt like it. And But the central point I'm making is that humanity seems to me to be almost pre-coded to evolve collectively, uh, possibly, 
and that um, humans all kind of seem to, well, I've only got about, you know, I've only got examples from the cultures that wrote something down, uh, China and India and Greece and all that sort of Rome. Um, but, you know, at least in those places, um, they all had uh, extremely famous people all come along at once, and it seems almost uncanny to me, you know. Um, Confucius and Buddha and, uh, and uh, Socrates and Aristotle and, and Plato in the middle there and all that sort of stuff, you know, all at once, you know, it seems uncanny to me. And I wonder, as I said, um, were there equally wonderful philosophers in Australia here in 2300 BC having awakenings as the light bulbs going off in their heads at the same time and you know and they were that was a golden era in indigenous culture in 2300 you know 2300 years ago was there a golden age of indigenous culture yeah there could have been you don't know and was there one in um, the, you know, in the Aztec and Incan world and all that sort of stuff at the same time? Could have been. You don't know. I, yeah. Well, you haven't got any proof, sporty. Um, so don't even claim it. Well, no, I'm going to have fun imagining it, you know. And this is what I'm getting at with this podcast. Keeping it loosey-goosey. Um, hey, if Indigenous people, I'm sure Indigenous people, you know, we like to think 65,000 years ago, you know, just people wandering around, um, throwing boomerangs at kangaroos but my goodness there must have been whole eras that you know were revolutions and all sorts of things in indigenous cultural ways um i bet you there were golden eras and eras of terrible devastation and wars and you know it would have been so complex you know um just the history of the world yeah look i've been studying the history history of ethiopia lately and the history of Ethiopia from Tedros, you know, who was 18, uh, now I'm starting, 1878, he got, he committed suicide. From Tedros through to now, the history of Ethiopia has been tumultuous and complex and so many things going on. Revolutions, you know, communism, um, you know, um, a king and a monarchy and then that was overthrown you know for a communist state and then there was a, a you know a democratic socialist state and even in the last three years I've been following a close politics closely in Ethiopia it's just crammed with complexity you know uh, just two days ago a general um, there was a coup attempt just three days ago a coup attempt and um, and uh, the general, uh, sorry, the general, the chief of staff of the Amhara region was shot, you know. A couple of other people were shot. He was shot dead, you know. There's a, there a crisis in Ethiopia, you know. And it's just so crammed in the last couple of hundred years. But then you ask an Ethiopian, tell me about the 3,000 years before that. And they said, oh, we just danced. You know, in our cult we did our cultural dancing and we had a nice line of, um, we had emperors going back to Solomon and it was kind of you know culturally idyllic and um, century after century after century after millennium um, we had a succession of kings we are the oldest monarchy on the planet we go back to Solomon um, and all that time the Ark of the Covenant has been sitting in Ethiopia 
and um, and you know it's only been this messy in the last 150 years no it's only been this messy in the last 150 years as a perception uh, it's been that messy the whole way through imagine if you could write a history book on the whole 3,000 year history of Ethiopia you could pick a single 200 year period that Wikipedia says nothing much happened there was just this emperor then that emperor then the next emperor and we don't know anything else if you could get yourself back there and write a book about what was happening there it would have been every bit as tumultuous as it is in the last 200 years as it has been in the last 200 years here and same goes with indigenous cultures there would have been so much going on every single 50 year period for the last 65,000 years you know, surely, you know, um, just the interactions between the mobs and the nations, as we call them, you know, there would have been um, transgressions of um, culture and, and people proposing dev better ways and different ways and trying to change the old ways, you know, and those old ways were only 200 years old, you know, not 65,000 years old, you know, there would have been um, uh, cultural traditions that were only a couple of hundred years old that had just grown up and people were now challenging them and it was a revolution, you know. And all of this was just happening around the Yarra River here in Melbourne. You know, such big things happening. Um, but, um, and, you know, and then that replicated right across around the continent of Australia. I like to imagine things like this. And meanwhile, I see in history books that the entire 65,000 year history of the indigenous peoples you know this is called the quiet continent because nothing much was happening nothing much that we knew was happening is what I'm saying and Ethiopia is the same um, in fact everywhere in the world is the same you know even Greece you know in the dark ages of Greece when the Homeric poems were being written you know people say you know we don't know what was going on there but we know Homer was being written you know, and that was a, an oral history just like Indigenous people. Um, and, the, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey were being written in the Homeric, you know, in the Dark Ages of Greece before, um, before what was that, before Pythagoras and, you know, um, Socrates and all that, you know. Um, uh, so that was all happening. So that would have been major times, you know. And then, you know, you have the Huns coming out of the hills, you know, and pestering Rome at one stage you say they just came out of the hills you know who are they you know and man can you imagine the complexity of the civilizations up in the hills even though we don't know what was going on up there it must have been epic is the word you know with um with the home Iliad and the Odyssey we use the word epic you know because they were talking about epic things that were going on in their period we have a real sense of the epic nature of Greece back then because it was written down, you know, so we have a recording of that. But we have no sense of the epic nature of, say, Ethiopian history, much more recently, even just a few hundred years ago, we don't know what was going on there. Hardly, you know, uh, because no one was writing much. Um, and, you know, we know we can derive and we can sort of work out what was happening in the Greek Dark Ages, because before then there was... Um, you know, uh, civilized, the Greek civilization had been higher. 
and then it had collapsed. And then in the Greek Dark Ages, all the people were standing amongst the ruins of their own ancestors, and they could see that their own ancestors had been greater than they are. We're not used to that in the modern age. In the modern age, we look around and see you know, shining cities, and we say there's never been anything like this in the past, you know. But there have been many times in history <coughs> where people have been standing in the ruins, they've been living like crap, and they've been, they're standing in the, in the ruins of civilizations that came before them that were clearly much better, much better, you know, much greater. You know, and the Greeks were like that, you know. Is that the Mycenaeans and all that sort of stuff had come before the Greek Dark Ages, and... Um, and the Greeks were standing there and they say, we are descended from giants. You know, whoever built all this stuff that even we can't replicate, and these were greater people than us. And, you know, then they start imagining those people and they write the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know. And, um, you know, Greek heroes, you know, um, that were probably greater than the original Greeks they were kind of referring to because that's imagination, that's human imagination which shouldn't be discounted because the entire Western world was built on the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, the whole, the, the, the idea of the Western world, you know, that's the start, okay? And I'm just suggesting that similar things, you know, maybe in um, Indigenous Australia, they had their golden ages, I'm sure. Um, I think if you, I have heard, you know, that the, even though we sort of think of um, Indigenous people as hunter-gatherers, I think they had forms of, um, uh, you know, complex forms of, I don't know if you call it agriculture but you know the way they did burning off and all that sort of stuff was quite complex apparently and I think they did some harvesting of some you know they encouraged plants in certain areas I'm sure there was a there was whole levels of complexity um, and subtlety in the way that they managed and interacted managed and interacted with the land that were just you know wonderfully sophisticated in the way in the same way that um, the way that uh, Plato and Aristotle thought, just the way they thought, were, was wonderfully sophisticated. I'm suggesting that human, human, humans all are at that level of sophistication and are just applying it to their own environments. Okay? Um, that's kind of what I'm saying. Alright? And um, to bring this all back to the idea of evolution, I, I feel that we had evolved into a certain sort of species, you know, and you can disagree with that. I've said that in other episodes. You can say that, you know, we just popped into existence, you know, and God made us, you know, from a rib, you know, and that sort of stuff if you're a woman like me. Um, but, um, you know, and Indigenous people, and it's amazing how little I know about the origin stories of Indigenous peoples. My children, did you hear them in the previous episodes? They clearly know more than me. You know, I have, you know, I'm so, um, such an ignoramus on all of that, that, you know, when I think rainbow snake, I think, what, did he make a rainbow, you know? So I'm a two-year-old when it comes to that, which makes me perfectly well qualified to make this podcast, you know, um, because I like that, you know, I like the way I, because you can come on a voyage of discovery with me as I discover these things, and my own children can teach me, my seven-year-old can tell me something about what the rainbow snake was really about, you know. I'm sure there were other things, you know, not just the rainbow snake, you know. There was black lizards, my daughter said. There would have been lots of things, you know. All right. Um, so, uh, um, so evolution. I get the feeling that we had, you know, I like to think, I, I, I actually do think, 
um, that we had evolved before we all split up onto different continents, you know, because as my brother says, there hasn't been enough time for any decent evolution ever since then, only 65,000 years, not long enough, you know, he said, um, in his pithy little way, you know, my brother said, not long enough, you know, um, and that was all he said, because he's like a Spartan, he just says things in a few words, a man of few words like Clint Eastwood, you know, the Spartans were like Clint Eastwood, sort of cruised around and just said one or two words occasionally. Okay, um, so, uh, and they were just as cool, if, you know. Um, so my brother said, not enough time, you know. Whereas a lot of anti-racists, for example, who I think sometimes um, are too obsessed, you know, leave it alone, you know. Sometimes you can over-anti-racist, you know. You can overdo the anti-racism, so, that, you know, if I was an indigenous person and I was listening to a racist and an anti-racist um, arguing with each other about me, objectifying me, objectifying me, I'm learning a lot about objectification and all that sort of stuff. I'm a real, you know, I've been listening to Simone de Beauvoir, you know, the objectification of women. But, you know, we objectify um, minority groups too and indigenous people are a minority group so far in Australia but they're getting more numerous every year uh, because you know there's heaps of people who you know all you need is intermarriage and you've got more indigenous people you know um, we've got a population of what 25 million people you know but we've got you know 20 million Irish 22 million English um, 15 million indigenous 4 million Spanish uh, you know 1 million Africans and um, 8 million Chinese in Australia and if you add all that together, um, you get 25 million, you know. And this is where it's good to keep things loosey-goosey, isn't it? Uh, because that doesn't sound logical. Um, yeah, the maths on that doesn't sound logical. And yet it's true. You know, that's the way it is. Soon we'll have, you know, or, you know, give us another couple of hundred years, give us another 300 years, and everybody will be indigenous in Australia because, you know, there'll be a little bit of indigenous blood in everybody. You know, that's the way it works. Okay, uh, so evolution, not enough time. I feel we did all our evolution, you know. Look, maybe we've done evolution since, but I can't detect any myself um, in the last 65,000 years. Um, when did we kind of evolve to our modern, you know, the modern type of human? Was it 300,000 years ago, something like that, you know? Um, and uh, we're just responding to our environments, our geographies, you know. That's the way I look at it. And um, with equal genius, possibly, we respond to our environments, you know. So um, if, if you have an environment where everyone believes in God, you have a whole lot of theologians who are geniuses and they are able to rationally make sense of the world given that God is a fact. It's a kind of logic, it's rational, and it involves great genius, you know? And for someone who's nowhere near the genius of these theologians, as I mentioned in another episode, to, you know, you know, um, Bob, you know, Bob the atheist, you know? So smug and smart is Bob, because he's down the pub and he's, um, some he doesn't even know how he came up with these ideas, but 
you know, if he did dig, he'd find out the Enlightenment philosophers kind of fed him these ideas. And um, he'd say, you know, I don't believe in God, it's a lot of rubbish, you know. And they, they, there's theologians back in the past, you know, Thomas Aquinas, he's an idiot because he believed in God, and I don't, you know. And I sort of say, you know, well, I think Thomas Aquinas was a genius, you know, and you're not. And he said, don't you call me not a genius? And I said, I call myself not a genius too. I just say, we're two blokes in a pub. We're not geniuses. Those theologians of old were geniuses compared to us. Outside, he says. <laughs> I say, why? Because you talk too much. Oh, fair enough, I said, let's go. <laughs> All right, that'll do for this podcast. You know what I'm talking about. I just remembered somewhere in that episode, I uh, suggested that if that my Greek mother-in-law shouldn't call me an Aussie, you know, not just because she's been an Aussie, or, sorry, he's, she's been an Australian longer than I have, you know, an Australian citizen, Australian citizen, it's very different than being indigenous, you know, um, there's different types of Australia, you know. There's, a, there's such a thing as an Australia as defined in the Constitution. But there's another thing that we call Australia as, you know, the collected nations that are the First Nations of us, what we now call Australia, you know. They're different Australias, you know. And when people are arguing, they often mix all the definitions up, don't they? they say, someone says... Australia is young and free, you know, and they're talking about the nation state of Australia, which is young and is free, according to a Greek definition of freedom and liberty. Okay, so the nation state of Australia, of course it's free. Oh, sorry, of course it's young, because it's only been around for, what, 100, 118 years, you know, 119 years. You know, what do you call that, old? No, it's young. It's free, you know, it's free for the people who are citizens. It's not free for the people who aren't. You know, it's free if you're the right, so if you've got freckles. It's not very free if you haven't got freckles, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so it is young and free for some, all right? So the song is correct. Okay, and I was jokingly sort of saying, you know, you might say to my Greek mother-in-law, don't you call your, you know, Anglo-Celtic son-in-law, or whatever he is, um, an Aussie? Uh, you have no right. The indigenous people are the true Aussies. Well, you know, they're true Australians under an indigenous Australia definition of Australia, but they're not, you know, and they are Australians under the um, Constitution, you know, not very well recognised in the Constitution. You know, their history is not very well recognised in the, in the Constitution. We don't, chat, we don't say much about them in the preamble or anywhere else. Uh, but, you know, they, they've got the vote, you know, since 1967. They're part of the civil structure, you know. They're, um, they're in the club. They're in the club. Well, they're in Club Australia now, you know. If I was an Indigenous person, I wouldn't want to be in Club Australia, you know. Um, every, you know it's a very African-American thing, I, I tend to think, to, to demand civil rights. Yeah, I have a dream, you know. It's, um, it's, a, it's a thing that seems self-evidently something that everyone must want, you know, because Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, you know, um, well, he had a dream about something else, you know. Um, but in between, you know, perhaps his dream about Tina Turner, you know. Um, 
had that dream myself. No, 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 you'd leave that alone. Anyway, um, so, um, and, all right, not his dreams. Um, you know, but that dream of African-Americans to have civil rights, you know. But that's not a dream shared by Indigenous uh, um, Americans, you know, First Nations over there. And, you know, if I was an Indigenous person, I wouldn't want the vote. Um because I'm a bit of a smart aleck like that, you know? And uh, I wouldn't want the vote. I'd say, no, I want, I want to have my nation, you know? I don't want to be part of your club that you call, ha-ha, laughingly, or you call Australia. Um, I am a Wurundjeri guy, you know? I'm a, a Wurundjeri man, you know? And um, I'm transgender as well, so I'm a, I'm a Wurundjeri woman, you know? Wurundjeri. Um, you know? Um, and I want to be Yorta Yorta, you know. Um, you know, something like that, you know. So it's not as simple as it seems. Um, but, you know, jokingly I said, you might want to go around to my mother-in-law and tell her not to call me an Aussie. You know, how dare you go and tell him off for being an Aussie who can't cook, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, when you've been, number one, when you've been an Australian longer than him, but, you know, you've been an Australian ten years more than him, you call yourself Australian, don't call him Australian, you know, don't call him an Aussie, call yourself Aussie, and don't even call yourself Aussie, because you've only been here for, you know, 60 years, you know, and, um, and, you know, call the, call the indigenous people Aussies, don't call yourself Aussies, um, uh, and, um, because, you know, they've been here for 65,000 years, and, uh, the thought that just occurred to me is, yes, you could go around and tell her that, you know, I'll give you her address. You go around and tell her that. She's Spartan, by the way. And, uh, but can you let me know when you're going around there? Because I'd like to go and get some popcorn. All right. <laughs> yeah, I like to finish these episodes off in a joke. Yeah. Good luck with that. You don't know her. She's wonderful, actually. She cooks for me all the time. My goodness, sometimes you marry the mother-in-law, don't you? Another thing I remember mentioning was that, you know, I was lording, you know, as in louding, you know, lording my brother for his egalitarian ways. You know, he takes each person as they come, regardless of race, colour, creed. You know, that whole thing. You know, and um, you know, that might not cut it for you, depending on who you are. If you're into identity uh, politics, for example, uh, you might say that's not enough. You know, you have to um, you have to do that, but you also have to do make special considerations for identity groups. You know, there's an argument for that. Um, uh, identity politics. You know, I'm not. A, you know, it's complex that one. Um, a lot of people try and simplify it, including people who are against identity politics and including people who are for it. Um, I could actually. Um, do you know back in the old days, when we were at school, we used to have debating competitions. Um, I don't know if they do them anymore, do they? And uh, let's say um, that I was, you know, back in debating uh, competitions, back in my day, uh, that I was an environmental activist, you know. Um, uh, you'd go, you'd have a, you'd, you'd be in a debating competition with another school, 
and you know pull it out of a hat what you the, the case you have to um, argue for or against and you know you might get something you know you might be the greatest you might hang off a bridge you might be the sort of person that hangs off the Sydney Harbour Bridge like my goddaughter's brother um, for the environment you know and you're passionate absolutely passionate about the environment you know the, the ice caps are melting you know the penguins pull you know the polar bears um, and down to your DNA, um, it hurts you that there are even humans on Earth because of you know what they do and their plague-like tendencies. You know the way they you know, they they um, breed worse than rabbits, and they're a plague on the planet. You know, I wish they were all dead. You know, you might be like that, um, and. They'd pull your name out of a hat and they'd say you have to argue against the idea that humans cause climate change. And I'm not sure that people are used to doing that anymore. Uh, it used to be a thing that we had to do when we were younger. I think this in the modern age of the social media, um, people are not quite used to doing that anymore. You know, I don't know how used to it people used to be in my day either. We had activists in my day. My goodness, we were in the 70s. When I was a kid, you know, so um, yeah, people had signs, no more war, you know, in my time, um, if you want it, um, and all that sort of thing. Um, so, but I, you know, I, 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 you know, maybe it's conservatism bias or something on my part, but I feel that people aren't as you know aren't as used to doing that anymore, and they couldn't argue against their own passion, uh, and. I wonder if, you know, that conditioning that I got when I was young feeds into these podcasts a bit. Is that possible? You know, the way I'm sort of arguing this way and arguing that way and, you know, and, you know, if you're a passionate person for conservatism or liberalism or socialism or whatever you're, you know, in the modern age, you have to be passionate. You have to, you have to um, wear a t-shirt for what you believe in, you know. If you believe in everything, you believe in nothing at all and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um... But, um, you know, um, this kind of more relaxed sort of zen attitude I've got, is it maybe not that zen, uh, but more just the way that I was educated, um, in which I, I, I kind of find it quite natural to argue against what I perhaps think, and I don't want to disclose what I think. You know, and you might call that a fence-sitting sort of thing to do. And um, stand up for what you believe in. And I said, I don't want to. What I believe in... You know, I might say, well, what I believe in is the idea of some people not wearing the T-shirt and thinking. I believe in thinking, I might say. And I say, no, no. Yes, you can believe in thinking, but you have to think the right way. You're not doing right think in the Orwellian sense. You know, they might say... And I said, no, no, I actually you to passionately believe in thinking in a different way, you know, I may disagree with what you say, but I will die for your right to say it and all that sort of stuff, you know, all that sort of thing. Maybe I'm like that, you know, but then again, I'm not totally in favour of free speech because, you know, if someone, if I'm in a theatre and someone um, yells fire and, uh, and there's not a fire and everyone rushes to the door and 17 people get killed or piled up on top of each other at the exit door, I'm um, not in favour of that, um, so, you know, 
But um, what was I talking about even when I started this little spiel? Um, I was talking about... Um, what was I talking about? Can you remember? Can you tell me? Uh, I forget. It was great, though. I was about to say something. Whatever it was. It's lost to the ether. Okay. Aha, I remember what it was. Yes, I was saying how I like my brother. He's my business partner. Oh, sorry, I'm working at the same time. That was a boop of my computer. Um, just processing rosters. I have the most boring job you would not believe. Um, now, um, what was I going to say? Uh, my brother is, um, I like him for the way he thinks, you know. Take every person on his or her or its merit, you know. And um, if it's a good one, if it's a good one. If it's a bad one, it's a bad one. And um, I was speaking to my godson, as I mentioned in a previous episode recently, who's been 10 years living in Indigenous communities. And he, um, I don't want to say too much about what he said because I haven't got any... He hasn't given me the go-ahead to do that, you know, so I can't quote him, but um, this is harmless enough. And he said um, uh, that acceptance up there, where he was, you're accepted based on whether everyone sort of senses whether you're the right, you know, you're right, you're a good bloke or you're not, you know. And he said they kind of, people can, just in the way you walk, he kind of said they can tell whether you're on their side or not, or whether you whether you're against them, you know. And um, he said, you know, most a lot of people go up there with high hopes of um, being involved with the indigenous communities up there, you know. Like oh, a lot of missionaries used to do that, didn't they? But he said a lot of people go up there and they have ideas of helping the indigenous or being with the indigenous people, and you know, all that sort of stuff, and making the world a better place. He said they last five minutes because people can just sense they're not, they're, they're not, they've got the right, they're not walking the right way, you know. And that's a big thing, you know, I'll let him explain that one day. But he said, um, just in the way you move, he said, they can, uh, you know, he said, I'm kind of getting there, he said, I can kind of identify, you know, at a distance, he said, people can recognise other people, you know, not by saying, Hey, is that you? You know, Bert? And he says, no, it's not Bert, it's Robert. Ah, Robert, hello. He said, from a distance, um, he said, they just have this way of recognising people just by the way they're moving. Um, you know, their gait. Um, and that sort of thing. And um, he said, um, he started to be able to recognise people in that way, in ways other than um, exchanging business cards, like we do, uh, in, in the cities. You know, when we're in business, we exchange business cards. Hi, this is me. My name is Sporty Monk. Your name is what? Yeah. Uh, can I have a job anyway? No. You know, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, um, maybe that's why when my brother was in the Northern Territory, you know, I do feel, you know, from what I heard, um, he used to get along like a house on fire getting drunk with uh, the locals up there, you know, which he was in mining and... Um, he was in, um, uh, what is it, um, pearl, you know, pearl fishing and all that sort of stuff up in Torres Strait and all that sort of thing, the, the Coburg Peninsula, yeah. 
all that sort of stuff. He was up there a long time, and I think you know he just became part of the all the mobs up there. You know, the, the mining mobs and the Aussies and the Indigenous peoples and <coughs> you know, and that would suit him fine. He wouldn't have cared who he was with. You know, if he liked you, he liked you. And if he didn't, he didn't. And I guess all I'm saying is that my godson said. That was kind of his experience with the indigenous mobs up there, and he's been up there for 10 years. My brother was up there for many years too, in a slightly different way. I think my godson was much more immersed in indigenous culture, specifically uh, becoming part of the community, whereas my brother was, you know, getting drunk. There's a very fine line between those two things. No, there isn't. That's a joke, a terrible joke. All right, now, um, uh, so... Yeah, so my godson was saying that was his experience too. That people just took you for who you are. You know? um, are, you, are you doing the righty? You're in. If you're not doing the righty, you're out. Yeah? But that doesn't fit well with identity politics and all that sort of thing. And I suspect that the indigenous... And I'm just guessing here. I, I suspect you could be the most raving anti-racist... You could go up into the indigenous communities up there and you'd be like a bull in a china shop and they'd say, look, would you just go back to Melbourne? I can imagine them saying that. Can you just go back to Melbourne? Uh, no, no, what are you talking about? I'm on your side, I'm an anti-racist, I'm against, you know, black and all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, look, just uh, stop talking about black and stuff. Just go away, you know, go away. Why, why are you sending me away? Just go away. <laughs> all right. Another thing I remember saying, just joking, that's all, end of episode. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.